Renny Larkin. I am a shareholder in our Denver office um, of Hall Render, and I do real estate uh, transactions, general transactions, and um, work as kind of a general counsel for some of our small critical access hospitals in the Mountain West. I'm going to turn it over to our panelists um, to let them introduce themselves. Um, so we'll start with Matt Crawford. Thanks, Renny. My name is Matt Crawford. I'm the Vice President of Real Estate and Ambulatory Facilities for Bon Secours Mercy Health, a Catholic nonprofit healthcare system located in Cincinnati, Ohio. I oversee our transactional activity in our real estate portfolio, as well as our ambulatory facility management platform and the administration of our portfolio at large. Glad to be here. Okay, thanks, Matt. Kelly? Oh, you're still on mute. Hi, my name is Kelly Adams. I'm in-house counsel for SCL Health, um, headquartered here in Broomfield, Colorado. We have hospitals throughout Colorado and Montana. Um, I provide legal support for strategic growth transactions and real estate matters and our joint ventures. Um, I counsel on acquisitions, dispositions, development work, and also negotiate our leases, subleases, and timeshares. Um, also partner with our uh, real estate management team, um, CBRE, uh, to help improve systems that manage our real estate portfolio. Uh, I've been with the system for just over a year, and prior, prior to that, I was in private practice uh, with the Denver office of Ackerman. Thanks for having me. Cindy? Thanks, Rennie. Um, my name is Cindy Black. I'm the director of real estate at IU Health. We're headquartered in Indianapolis, Indiana, and, and we have hospitals and uh, we deliver care across the state of Indiana. Um, I work with a team that uh, manages all of the transactions, the asset management, the lease administration, um, partner with uh, internal providers who help us deliver um, construction services throughout the system. And uh, just happy to be here and talk to you about what we're doing. Great. Thanks, Cindy. Heidi? Hi, Rennie. My name is Heidi Hohendorf. I'm senior legal counsel for Spectrum Health. Spectrum Health is a nonprofit integrated healthcare system serving West Michigan. Uh, we have a presence as far north as Traverse City, Michigan, all the way down to the Michigan-Indiana state border uh, with our, cap or our corporate headquarters in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, our real estate portfolio consists of approximately 12 million square feet. We've got about 10.5 million that we own and 1.5 million lease that consists of 14 hospitals, including a, a dedicated children's hospital, 11 urgent care centers, various different physician offices, and seven integrated care campuses. My role uh, includes providing, um, I'm involved with um, reviewing, negotiating, drafting contracts throughout the system with a primary focus on providing legal support for our real estate team. Great. Thank you again for, for being here. Um, so kind of as we saw who registered, I think we have a wide variety and diverse attendees um, participating in our in our the webinar today and, and signing in. So I think it'd be helpful and instructive if each of you would just kind of talk through um, your real estate department, how it works, how it interfaces with strategy, business development and finance. Um, so as people are kind of hearing your responses, you know, it might they just might be able to take some application and and, and move it forward with their institution. So um, we'll start again just with Matt and kind of go in the same order. Sure. Um, <clears throat> as I mentioned, I, I'm in the uh, area of our department that deals with real estate and ambulatory facilities. Sort of think of it as your sort of traditional corporate services platform, your transactions, your brokerage, your 
property management, maintenance, et cetera, and then the overall administration, paying the rent, collecting the rent, dealing with expirations and options, et cetera. Uh, I'm oriented as part of a, a broader group, real estate development and construction. And um, uh, uh, we have in-house development capabilities. We have a des design and construction arm. Uh, and within my group, we are, we're heavily outsourced. We, we have a corporate partnership with Cushman and Wakefield uh, where we outsource a lot of the, the blocking and tackling and the, the fundamental stuff we do uh, in service of the organization. Uh, we report through finance. Um, and, uh, you know, broadly interact with obviously our medical group, our hospital leaders, our group leaders, our market leaders, just a, a, a host of folks that, 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 you know, perpetuate the activity of a system the size of ours. So fully integrated within the organization, uh, but then again, heavily outsourced as it relates to the services we provide uh, to our constituents, both internal and external. Great. Thank you. Kelly? So our internal real estate team um, consists of uh, a VP over real estate, and then we've got a planning construction team. And then like Matt, we outsource a lot of um, facilities management, um, you know, lease administration services, um, brokerage services, things like that to CBRE, who's our management company. Um, they also provide some strategic input in terms of, you know, in the context of new development and um, some of our existing assets. And then our leaders in various markets um, and our business development team work really closely together um, in tandem with this real estate team on, on projects and initiatives. Um, I'd say, generally speaking, real estate is a little bit of an output of a strategy at my organization, but um, you know, there's times we sort of develop an operational strategy in terms of what markets we want to be in, and then the real estate team is really pulled in to identify um, you know, potential properties or areas for um, development. And because we sort of have a leaner structure at my organization, I'm sometimes pulled into sort of the more front end strategy for the system as well. That's great. Thanks, Kelly. What about, tell us about IU Health, Cindy. Yeah, so IU Health has a really robust platform. Um, we have a, a, a pretty well actualized real estate department. We, our real estate department has a number of verticals. So we have our transaction management where we do all of the leasing acquisitions and dispositions. We have another team that manages the lease administration. We um, have an asset management group that's growing as we speak and, and bringing on more and more capabilities. We also in-house have a design and construction group who actually sits outside of real estate, but we partner with them on most of our transactions. Wherever we're missing capabilities, we, we bring in third-party vendors. So again, all the support services that Matt and Kelly talked about, we're bringing in brokers and developers and con uh, contractors, uh, space planners, architects, engineers, wherever we need the, uh, that kind of support so that we can deliver a, a complete um, you know, capabilities to our team. As far as how we work with our strategy folks and our finance folks, um, the strategies delivered, you know, both at a system level, regional level, and a local level, and it kind of depends on the type and the magnitude of the project. So, you know, if it's a, a new billion dollar hospital that you're contemplating, you know, that's that's definitely going to sit at the system level. Um, but we have um, smaller, um, uh, less less um, less large. Um, uh, strategies that'll be delivered on more of a regional, local level, although mm -hmm. we're, we are integrated throughout the system. Um, and as Kelly mentioned, um, you know, strategy really is the guiding 
uh, light with uh, what it is we want to be doing, right? They make a decision with um, all the stakeholders that are involved. We provide input information so that they're making, they have some real estate leaning information to make those decisions, but they make the decision and then kick that back to us. And they may tell us what they want and what in perhaps what geographic area or submarket. we tell them what corner there are opportunities on and what the cost of that's going to be and how that could be structured, whether an own or a lease type of a, um, a model. And then with that information, they'll go back and, and together we'll make the decisions. Finances is um, feathered throughout all of those discussions. So they're always at the table. Uh, and, and that's, um, it's, it's just a real dynamic kind of push and pull uh, through the system as we deliver. That's great, thank you. Tell us about Spectrum Health, Heidi. Yeah, so our structure is very similar to what Cindy just described. We also have an in-house real estate department that's comprised of five contract specialists, including two real estate service leads. We have an accountant dedicated to our real estate functions. Um, they're overseen by a senior director of real estate strategy and planning, and also a VP of real estate and facilities. Um, they So this team is very involved in the real estate strategy and planning are often at the table in those discussions, providing input and, and actually, you know, driving decision-making too, mm -hmm. and work very closely with our in-house plant operations and facilities teams. We also have an in-house construction team that includes on-staff architects, design specialists. So those, those teams all work very closely together. We, we do also outsource construction. We, you know, engage with contractors for construction projects and whatnot, but we do have a robust in-house team. Um, all of the senior leadership in our real estate department reports directly to the, well, up through the chain reports directly to our um, our chief financial officer. So he's all he's very involved in decision-making processes related to real estate strategy as well. So that's how we interact with facilities or with finance, but there's processes in place where the operational stakeholders are brought in on relevant projects related to the service line. So I'm not involved in the, you know, day-to-day -day behind the scenes strategy, but um, the real estate team is, is very ingrained in that process with our finance and our strategy teams. Great, thanks. Well, and so just let me kind of give a roadmap to our attendees of where we want to go today and, and use this time. Um, we're just going to kind of talk through trends reimbursement. I mean, I don't think it's been, you know, I think it's been an exciting year <laughs> in uh, kind of healthcare in general. Um, it's one way to put it. Um, and just talk through, you know, obviously the pandemic's going to come up, but also, you know, normal kind of implications of regulatory reimbursement, um, other industry trends that we're seeing, and how that's impacting. Um, becoming the output for healthcare real estate strategy. And so feel free, um, there is a Q&A box um, at the bottom of your screen. Feel free to post questions throughout. Um, if we can fit it in, we'll pop it in timely. Otherwise, we'll, we'll try to leave some time at the end uh, for any questions that we didn't get to. But, but don't hesitate. We want to interact with you uh, all as attendees. Um, and make this kind of as dynamic as possible. So uh, just in that Q&A box, uh, feel free to throw any questions up you might have and, and we'll do our best to answer them. So I think the first topic I, I want to hit is, um, I mentioned, you know, obviously we're seeing regu regulatory changes, reimbursement changes, 
Um, and those are typical, you know, without a pandemic. I think one thing we've seen this year too is, is telehealth, right? Um, there's been a great, I think the pandemic was a catalyst for really pushing telehealth uh, use, uh, both on the provider and the patient side. Um, so I think that's one component. But if you guys just want to talk through um, what you're seeing in those areas, those trends, and how that's informing your, your strategy for real estate. Yeah, I think, uh, Rennie, as you mentioned, the pandemic has really accelerated out of necessity um, some of the uh, telehealth initiatives that were already in place or that we were working towards as a system. And, you know, right now we're operating in a much more relaxed uh, regulatory environment that might be tightened um, post-pandemic. But, you know, I think telemedicine for us is going to continue to supplement our brick and mortar operations and is, is certainly a good tool for early consults um, and follow-up visits, uh, I think ultimately it may actually expand our medical office space because we're able to reach more rural residents um, in our Colorado and Montana markets and provide consults that would lead eventually to um, in-person uh, visits. And then I think, you know, the other impact that we're seeing is, is on construction. So I think there's some considerations in terms of how you know, our new spaces are designed and constructed to reconfigure facilities to provide, you know, technology enabled spaces and remote health monitoring services. And so it's impacted space planning as well. But I think overall, I see telehealth really as a complement to our traditional models of delivering care and, you know, not so much a, a replacement. I can kind of reiterate what Kelly said. I mean, there's, um, Obviously, regulations have a huge impact in our industry, and they're constantly changing. Um, they impact where we locate, and they impact how we deliver and how we design our space. And so um, everyone in the industry has been asking, how is telehealth going to impact your footprint, right? And um, early on in the pandemic, leaders that I, I was talking to felt that, gosh, the advent of all of these relaxed regulations and the increased use of telehealth would have the effect of reducing our footprint. But actually, as we're starting to work through how care is delivered, we're, some of the realities of that um, are kind of changing our attitude. And, and while it's not fully informed yet, what we're finding is that physician that is sitting in the office that's delivering telehealth care needs a, a PA or a, another assistant to set up that call, and they both have to sit someplace. And if that physician is also delivering care in a clinical exam room to patients in the flesh, and, and but part of his scheduled time is virtual care, then he's got to have two places to be in that same office. So what those workflows look like and, and how that impacts the design of our space is really something that we're trying to flesh out. Um, we're all, I think everybody on this call understands, we are all living in legacy space that was designed for workflows um, as they used to be. And so we're just trying to get our hands around what those workflows are going to become and how that will impact. Yeah, to, to echo what both Kelly and Cindy said, so far we haven't seen telehealth as having a major impact on any sort of reduction in, in space, clinical space that we need. Um, it's, you know, telehealth is, is important in, as a convenience for the patient and we have been and will continue to focus on 
on quality of care and patient convenience. And, and the way that we've done that in the real estate world so far is we have, I mentioned earlier, seven integrated care campuses. And for us that those are kind of a one-stop shop where the patients can come. They're, they're located throughout the service areas that we serve. So the, they offer a, a range of coordinated health care services from diagnostic to primary care to specialty care. So a patient comes in, they're, they're close to their home. They're not having to travel you know, an hour away to go to the hospital. They have convenient parking. They can come in and um, get a lab drawn, get an x-ray, go down the hall and you know, see their primary care doctor. So we see you know, with telehealth being convenient for patients, that's kind of what we're focusing on from a real, real estate perspective is just making healthcare simple, simple and, and affordable and convenient for the patient. So those are some means that we've been doing it. Again, I don't see telehealth reducing the footprint, but reconfiguring, like Cindy and Kelly said, to bring in technology to expand that and expand our convenience to the patients. Yeah, I think that's great and really insightful. I, I think, you know, the man on the street would probably, if they were asked, would assume the opposite, right? So, um, you know, another thing, and, and Heidi, you hit on this, and maybe Cindy, if you're, you want to talk about this, because you and I had talked about it, as we see this regulatory and reimbursement push towards really value-based care, I think you're going to continue to see um, possibly the incentives to create more of kind of that integrated care. Cindy, can you just talk a little bit about some of the real estate implications you're, you're thinking through, your teams are thinking through, as that might become more of a reality? Sure. So, you know, value-based care and population health management are all kind of buzzwords that are flying around in the healthcare system. And we're, we're obviously the goal is how do we improve the health of our patients and reduce the cost of care at the same time. And real estate kind of is a layer over that that helps us accomplish that. And, and as I spoke previously, we're all living in legacy space and legacy space, you know, has a workflow that's designed around the way we used to deliver care. So now if we're we're looking for um, a model that Heidi was talking about, more of an integrated model where we're bringing all of the different provider types into one place. And for the convenience of the patient, we're trying to drive them through all of the different service providers that they need and treat the whole patient. Then that looks at a different workflow and that's going to require a redesign. And so I think this is work that was started pre-pandemic and I think it'll uh, continue post-pandemic. Um, but real estate is definitely at the forefront and helping to figure out how we can make that happen. Thanks, Cindy. You know, and a question just came in, and, and I think one of them is really relevant um, here is uh, those of you that kind of talked on how telehealth might be changing your spaces. Have you seen specifically kind of HIPAA compliant spaces? Is that a concern? Um, and do you, has that taken into consideration for kind of remodeling to ensure, you know, that the provider can be providing uh, telehealth services without, you know, certainly a violation of HIPAA, maybe something we wouldn't be considering, you know, in a day-to-day because -day they're, they're seeing a patient in a closed room. Are we taking that same consideration into to the telehealth implications for real estate? 
or somebody's the, jumping in on that one, I will. I think HIPAA compliance is always at the forefront of all of our minds when we design our space, right? Yeah. And and so we all have specialists and guidance in our organizations that are helping us make sure that we have security and safety um, in place in, in whatever form or fashion needed. So I, I can't think of a specific example, um, you know, how how the telehealth delivery would change that. Uh, I don't know if one of my other panel members can think of something that they're I mean, saying. I'm thinking, you know, no longer can the, maybe we're not providing telehealth in the break room and knew we never were, but right <laughs> as, a, as a, the pandemic happened, maybe that's where you were providing it because we just haven't thought through spaces, but it's like truly that needs to happen in, in a private space. Um, you know, even if the patient's not there, the provider still needs to be giving that in a private space. And I think you touched on that, Cindy. Um, I don't know if anyone else has any other thoughts, but that's kind of where my I jump to. Yeah, and I mean, I think that supports, um, I think Heidi's comment as well regarding, you know, that we're still using exam rooms to provide the telehealth services. So it's not, it's not separate space, it's just incorporating it into our kind of existing designs. Right, but just because the patient's not there doesn't mean we need less space to, to deliver that care in a way. Yeah, no, super insightful. So I think, um, you know, let's turn to, to the pandemic, um, what are the effects? I think there's there's two kind of different ways that we've talked about this that we see it affecting. Um, there's the the effects of the pandemic on non-patient facing space, right? Our admin space, our space where uh, we don't necessarily need people to be in a central location. Um, what are the effects that your your systems kind of seeing because of that? Um, I'm happy to speak a little bit to the, the non-patient facing side of it. Our, our administrative footprint, I, I certainly can't say has has experienced as much scrutiny as it has over the last year or so. And, and you know, what I think, uh, I mean, the learnings are just ever-changing, ongoing. You find out something new about how it's working or not working for groups, individuals, departments, you know, almost every day, sometimes by the hour. You know, I don't think just because we're in healthcare, we're really any different than other off, any other off office occupying business. You know, we've got administrative space that, that doesn't include any clinical function and we're, you know, analyzing how we can be more efficient in that space. Doesn't mean we can get out of some leased locations that are, uh, uh, you know, become less necessary. Sure, consolidate into what we may have a longer term commitment uh, to occupy, uh, absolutely. You know, but I think it extends into how we use our existing space and what we need to keep. I think for us, what has what we found is that for a lot of people, this has been okay. It hasn't been as shocking or as disruptive or as uncomfortable relative to being productive at work, uh, I think, as a lot of people might have anticipated. And I think the question for, again, not just us, but many, many, many other office using companies is, you know, what level of this should continue? to achieve either cost savings, flexibility, or perhaps more importantly these days, associate retention. Mm -hmm. Just because you know, we are a Catholic nonprofit healthcare organization doesn't mean we don't want to think like organizations that have to recruit talent just like we do. And if affording you know, a work environment you know, that, 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 or, or an option to work in a way that's not everyday on-site in an office makes sense, then that's something I think we want to be able to pivot towards. So uh, you know, how we use the space, what we keep and what we don't, what level of work can be done just as productively uh, from a room like the one I'm sitting in right now, uh, I think are questions that, that, you know, are definitely out there and that continue to be answered with new information every day. Mm -hmm. uh, it was certainly 
probably not an end in sight, at least in the next, you know, 12 to 18 months. Yeah, I, I can speak to how it's affected our administrative space too. And we were actually, Spectrum Health was taking a look at how we were going to reimagine use of administrative space before COVID hit. Um, we had been involved in, in conducting a study where sensors were installed in some of our spaces to see how often the administrative space was utilized and found that in, in some instances, people were using their space less than 50% of the time. Um, whether that would be, you know, they were offsite attending meetings and whatnot. And, and we had, and we still do intend to build a new um, center for in, um, innovation and transformation where we're planning to co-locate various different administrative departments. Now, um, COVID has definitely impacted how we're rethinking how that's going to be designed um, before COVID. So the, these, these statistics just came out last week our workforce showed that in February of 2020, we had less than 1% of our workforce working virtually. And that, so that amounted to about 200 um, employees. As of February, 2021, it was 20%, which was 7,000 plus. So we don't see remote work going away. Um, in fact, a survey showed us that 97% of our employees wanted to have the option to work remotely, at least part of the time have some flexibility. So COVID has definitely been an accelerant and to use a term that our, our senior director of facilities planning and strategy says, he, he calls it a positive disruptor. So it's causing us to think about getting out of conventional use of space where one employee had one office and, and focus more on shared space, um, hoteling space, um, spaces that give people the flexibility, like I said, maybe, maybe I don't need an office in a building dedicated to myself full time. Maybe I'll work from home two days a week and I'll share it with one of my colleagues. So we're looking at how we're going to reimagine, redesign our administrative space. And, and it's definitely going to result in a reduction, um, especially when we have this new building built, because as I mentioned, we're going to be co-locating various different departments and that's going to free up some space and, and some cost savings that, you know, and we can, you know, if we, if we own that, the space that's being vacated, then we can repurpose it for other clinical purposes. But I, I think the work from home really more than anything is showing how, how administrative space is going to be impacted going forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think like Matt and Heidi described, um, you know, SEL Health too is sort of exploring different ways to consolidate our office space and reconfigure the space to move away from, you know, individual offices or cubes and move towards more kind of collaborative workspaces. And, you know, this, uh, our response, I think, is not primarily being driven by cost. I think that's certainly a, a secondary benefit. Um, but, you know, we, like others, have kind of surveyed our associates and and recognize that, uh, you know, it's really important for employee satisfaction and retention and recruitment that we um, allow for that, that flexibility. And so, um, you know, our, our space planning is really just being responsive um, to that. And, and another thing we're sort of factoring in is, so we are co-located with a, a technology company on a campus. Um, and depending on what their strategy is in terms of, you know, return to work, um, that impacts, you know, some of the shared amenities on campus, like, you know, cafeteria and, and gym and things like that. So that's certainly being taken into consideration as well when we're 
or planning. Um, I think, Renny, you mentioned too, just like other trends from a, a patient-facing um, perspective. And I, I think I'll just add, um, you know, a little bit in terms of what I've seen in the market. Uh, you know, we are in the process of building a new campus for one of our existing hospitals. And um, I think as a result of, of the pandemic and the economic impact, uh, de developers, uh, I think, are eager to work with us because we're financially very strong. And we've seen, you know, definitely uh, proposals with, with some very uh, competitive cap rates, um, which has been uh, good to see and is, you know, working to our advantage. And then I'd say um, the other area we're sort of looking at is, is retail space. Um, and I think there's, you know, opportunity there. Um, where, you know, landlords are eager to get us in as tenants, and we've been able to negotiate some pretty strong terms um, for leases there. I, I would, Kelly, I would add to what you just said relative to the creativity of landlords uh, across the board, really, you know, whether it's, it's honing in on healthcare as a, an industry that has to survive, or, or whether it's, you know, just thinking of ways to repurpose space that's recently become vacant. You know, we, we've certainly been, I would say, the beneficiary of some tremendously creative ideas, owners in our various markets who are obviously trying to attract uh, a tenant to a property, but but frankly, properties that, that we hadn't traditionally thought about in the past. You know, when we're, as Cindy may have alluded, when we get down to that zip code or that corner, you know, what, what, we, what, what maybe haven't we considered before because it hasn't been available or haven't considered before because there was tremendous competition for the space. I think there's there's certainly a trend towards those properties being put in front of us in a more significant way and, and us being forced to evaluate those uh, uh, a little more differently than a little differently than we have in the past. Yeah, there's definitely I mean, we're you're seeing just nationally kind of this this reuse of space that the pandemic probably accelerated like a shopping mall. Um, right. I mean, we're seeing healthcare tenants take advantage of that and, and move in and repurpose that, um, you know, for, for maybe a uh, integrated care model or, or what have you, right? But but just with fresh new eyes, looking at that for maybe something you wouldn't have considered in the past um, and landlords willing to work with you from a, a TI perspective or, or what it may be to, to make sure that that meets your needs. Cindy? Yeah, know? I could just jump in there. I mean, right, we're looking for, we're trying to be opportunist, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Opportunistic. And so um, pre-pandemic, everybody was trying to move towards more of a retail model in the delivery of care, get closer to the patient. Um, and so, um, and retail was very attractive, but um, anybody working in the real estate industry knows that your retail is, is pretty high priced. Um, that those, those corners are prime, right? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, it's difficult for some of our operations uh, to support that kind of cost. Um, but as those, um, as retail starts to see, um, you know, starts to feel some pressure, um, we become more attractive as target tenants, right? And so um, we, we've, um, we are our long hold tenants. We go into space, we don't leave and we pay the rent on time and landlords really appreciate that. So if a landlord is, is under some pressure that might create some opportunity. And, and I've seen some 
um, some really unique applications where um, vacant shopping centers have been turned uh, into corporate headquarters, administrative space, um, you know, and, and then again, there, there are those typical, you know, outlot opportunities or inline retail where, gosh, I'd love to put primary care there, but it's, it's just a really high cost, but maybe there's a, a, some softness in some particular areas that we could take advantage of at this time. Yeah, and Cindy, if you'll, I know we're stepping back a little bit, but I thought you had just an interesting experience with kind of the work from home and how the serving of people kind of changed as the pandemic went on, depending on age group too. Do you mind talking a little bit about that? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, so I mean, you know, Heidi was talking about serving and everybody in the market, um, real um, healthcare typically relies on high skilled uh, employees, right? And so we are all in the business of trying to retain those employees because mm -hmm. uh, it, it's hard, it's costly, uh, right, to have that turnover going on. So we've been surveying and we've delivered several surveys. And at the beginning of the pandemic, um, my staff, you know, I can speak anecdotally, they, they were ready to go back, waiting to go back. And, and we have several generations represented on our team. And um, over the course of time, as our capabilities of working remote have shifted and changed, and people have really come to appreciate the work-life balance that um, has come along with this. Um, kind of some of the unexpected discoveries have been, uh, we've gotten to know each other better. Um, in fact, we as panelists talked about that earlier, um, that you know, I now know who has a cat and who has a dog and what their names are because they're on screen, right? And I hear them in the background and we know each other's children's names and that's been really refreshing. Um, and so, um, and we are also, those of us who have any kind of a commute, we're realizing we can have two to three hours added back in our day. Now, some of us choose to put that into our work and we never get out of our seats and others, you know, choose to, you know, have a little more work-life balance. Um, but my team specifically has now really grown and decided that this isn't, this isn't a bad model. What we're seeing really is, um, a demand by our employees for a hybrid model, right? And what does that look like? That's the head scratcher. And how do you manage that? Mm -hmm. So, you know, people people sharing space in a safe environment. Pre-pandemic, we were going to more, we were densifying our space. And so we were taking out the walls and pushing people closer together and fewer private offices. And that was wonderful, but we're not sure how that works in this new environment now. And um, so so, um, and how many days a week and how do we manage who comes in and out and how do we reserve that space? And so there are a lot of challenges with planning for that hybrid approach, but that does seem to be um, the, the, the preferred model, at least what we're seeing evolve. And just a question from one of the participants that I think tags on to the end of this, and you guys all touched on it, but do any of you at this point have a return to work strategy or is it still in flux? Um, I'll just you know the timing of that. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I'll finish because, um, and then I'll throw it to some of my partners here to see what they're doing. I, I, I think it, it depends. So, and it changes, right? So um, earlier in the pandemic, everybody said we were going back at the end of 2020 and then it was June of 2020 and now it's maybe December, I'm sorry, now it's June of 2021 and, and now it's maybe December of 2021. And so I guess my answer is we don't know when we're 
going back and we don't know how we're going back. That's I'm speaking for, for um, generally for my system, understanding that our healthcare providers, they have never gone home, right? That we are continuing to work uh, and we're all working. It's just uh, this remote for, workforce. We don't know when we're going back and how. Yeah, that's, that's the same for us too. Um, like Cindy said, it's, it's continuously changing. Um, plans are being put into place, but you know, it's, it's all science driven based on what is going to be happening with the vaccine. Um, what sort of, you know, the herd immunity and what we're seeing come out of COVID, you know, the, the, the vaccine and how it's going to impact people. Um, we kept having deadlines too, and the targets have shifted. The last I heard was earliest return would be January of 2022. For those of us that are working at, that can work at home, we're still having to work from home. Um, and then when people do come back, it's going to be, flexibility will be implemented and it's going to be role-based too. You know, who, who has the ability to do this work at home without having to be on site? Um, so there's just lots of variables and, and I think there will be pilots put into place. What does the return to work look like? What's the space going to be look like, you know, from a safety perspective. And so I think different groups will kind of come back on at like a phased in basis. Yeah. Yeah, I would just echo uh, Cindy and Heidi's comments um, from our perspective, from SEL Health's perspective you know, really the plans have continued to evolve over time and, you know, just continue to be responsive to new research that's out there and then the data that we're collecting internally as to people's preferences. Um, you know, I, I think generally speaking, a hybrid model is, is probably what we're moving towards, like others have mentioned. Um, but, you know, I think it just continues to be something that we're working on and, and, and trying to uh, implement. One question that uh, was asked before we move on from this topic, we've all talked about kind of all admin being sent home, the administrative offices, does that include, they specifically asked, does that include kind of the administrative associate? So um, kind of your assistant type, are they working, are they, have your systems been able to mobilize them such to work at home uh, or were they returned back to work? I, I would offer yes and with great success. Okay. You know, with, you know, I, I think my one, something I was going to say earlier when City was talking, it, it's, and I said this earlier to this group, I, you know, it's almost a shame that it took a pandemic for us to come face to face with our shared humanity. And I think that, that, you know, we've realized that while we may do it begrudgingly in, you know, largely it can be done. And, and it's been from, from the top down, certainly in our organization, as, as everyone has alluded, it's, you know, to what degree will that persist is sort of the rest of the story. And it seems like more than less. Thanks. Well, let's move on um, into, I'm gonna switch you guys up a little bit, but I think you guys are ready. Um, <laughs> kind of the, just driven by some of the questions I'm seeing in the Q&A box, let's talk kind of the pros and cons of lease space uh, versus own space. And especially in light of a pandemic and how that might kind of, um, kind of, um, change the way you look at things moving forward. I, I'm happy to take a swing at that a little bit as it relates to leasing versus owning and the activity across our portfolio. I think, you know, in years past, the mantra was if you need the flexibility and you're generally off campus broadly, leasing makes sense. 
heretofore have we had to take advantage of that flexibility sometimes, but not very often. I think there's a lot of, a lot more these days we're, we're analyzing certain locations and saying, hmm, nice short remaining lease term. Let's, let's, it gives us an opportunity to do something to help ourselves. And I just think that's really writ large these days, especially as it relates to our newly acquired lease locations. It's all of those, um, uh, all those flexibility benefits that come with leasing a, a space are, are, you know, ever more important uh, on the ownership side. Again, it's really the same analysis. And I think it's these days it, it's, if we're going to be there long enough, will it make financial sense? Well, once you figure that out, you're analyzing your, your capital options, internal, external, et cetera, and you're trying to figure out whether it makes you know, the most sense to, to deal with something internally and try to control that piece of real estate or whether it makes sense to bring in a partner. And you've got an environment now where, uh, Kelly, I think you said earlier, you know, cap rates are changing rapidly. You know, demand is increasing substantially and, and properties are trading at a velocity that, that you know, it's, it's startling almost to see that it happening during a pandemic, I guess, that we are still in. It, it, it's that type of activity you thought would largely slow down. I don't know if it's healthcare specific, but it is most assuredly picked up. And, and you know, to the extent we can participate in that opportunity to own our own real estate that we populate, you know, we do. I think a lot of organizations do. And again, as it relates to the leasing, just, you know, finally taking advantage of that that rainy day flexibility that you always wanted, but but very rarely you know pulled the string on, uh, and I think that you know that demand for flexibility when you're negotiating new leases, that demand. I saw a question actually that I might take a swing at answering. We're seeing a lot of landlords more and more willing to extend the period of time during which we're obligated to spend TI money, and that's really nice, frankly. Thanks to all you landlords out there. Thank you very much. It, it, it's it's it gives us the flexibility because the TI allowance doesn't always go all the way for us. We have to put some of our own capital next to it. it gives us a chance to wait to spend some of our own money, and and if we have to give a little more term in order to gain that flexibility, that's a hugely beneficial thing for us. Mm -hmm. uh, again, going back to what I said earlier, flexibility in the leasing scenario, uh, expanding a little bit relative to our own portfolio, uh, I think has, has, has benefit on both sides. And I think as, as Heidi might've said, has been accelerated uh, by, by the pandemic environment. Yeah, I know with our system, we, we definitely have been seeing advantages in owning um, as of late. And, and, you know, for several reasons, one being able to control costs and operating expenses. Um, you know, if we're leasing five different buildings, we got five different landlords, they're using five different cleaning companies. Um, they all have their own, you know, different protocols that they put in place. Whereas if we own the building, we can use our own internal environmental services to save just some, you know, efficiencies there. They're familiar with our spaces and, um, with regard to reduction in costs. As far as flexibility goes, I think it goes both ways. There's definitely flexibility in leasing, but there's flexibility in owning too. You know, we're not tied by restrictions that the landlord might have in place. We can use the space within, you know, regulatory confines, how we want to use it without having to get permission from the landlord. Um, you know, we there's certainty in knowing that, you know, if a lease term comes up, we might have to negotiate with the landlord. They, you know, we might be at a disadvantage. They might charge higher rent. Whereas when we own it, we've, we've got, you know, we, we have certainty that we will have that space available to us. And, you know, like I said, it goes both ways. 
there's pros and cons for both, but we've we've been seeing pros in lease or in owning outweighing the cons. Yeah, I would add too that from an operational perspective, um, there are definitely some pros to owning during a pandemic as well, just in terms of having more control um, over the building and other tenants, and um, you know, really just from an infection control perspective as well. So you know, helpful in terms of enforcing you know social distancing, mask wearing. Um, you know, airflow, HVAC issues, things like that, and, and even, you know, cleaning and disinfection processes. And so, you know, when the pandemic hit in the spring, for the buildings that we own, um, where we have third party tenants, you know, we instituted pretty strict supplemental building rules and regulations around kind of best practices, um, which helped create standards that ultimately, you know, protected our patients that were coming to visit us at those locations. So, um, you know, I guess the flip side to that is that, you know, this required deploying a lot of resources on our end, um, whereas, you know, if we were leasing, the landlords would kind of bear, um, bear some of those burdens. So, um, I, I, you know, another kind of challenge, I think, has been for us as landlords um, has been dealing with various issues that have come up with rent deferral and rent abatement requests mm -hmm. from our tenants. And so we've had to manage that. And, you know, we're in the business of healthcare and not um, real estate. And so uh, certainly that has has shown, you know, to provide some challenges for us and is more complicated from a, a regulatory perspective as well. Yeah, I could just add tag on to that. Some of the things that we found ourselves trying to manage during the pandemic is, hey, gosh, we need to stand up a daycare immediately for our employees so that we can deliver, day, uh, deliver care to our patients. We need to get an infusion center going so that we can start delivering some of these um, different treatments that are now available. Uh, we need drive-through testing and we don't own the building, but hey, landlord, do you mind if we start putting tents up and start routing patients through? And we're bringing them from all over the city. And by the way, we need to change our hour of operations and we want to control who can come in and not come in this building and under what circumstances they can come in. So you don't mind if we put controls in on your building, right? Um, so these were all interesting conversations that we had, especially when we, we might be the majority tenant, but we are not 100% tenant in those buildings. So those were some of the challenges we began to face. Um, I would say that, you know, whenever we're trying to figure out how we're going to deploy our cash, we have to do have a trade-off question, right? Right? Do we do we drive our money first? We assess the, our financial health, and then are we going to put that money in our core business? Are we going to hire more doctors, more providers? Are we going to buy, you know, more um, X-ray machines and MRIs? So, you know, once we get past that hurdle and we we have managed our core business, then um, if there's is there, if there's still money available. I, I would say uh, some, uh, in response to some of the other comments uh, I've heard, I guess uh, we're, we're developing a framework um, on when we want to own and when we want to lease and, and right. And so it, what it, I think a lot of systems kind of had loose framework anyway. And so now we're just tightening that up. So if it's on our hospital campus, if it's attached to our hospital, gosh, our preference would probably be to own. Um, if it's if it's uh, in an emerging market, um, we're not sure and we want to retain flexibility, that might be a place where we want to stay flexible and lease. Um, and then there are different product types. Do you want to own your surgery centers? Do you, you know, it's a it's a high cost um, delivery of care, but it is, um, you know, it, dealing with landlords who maybe don't manage those buildings to the standards that you would like, it, it creates that push and pull. And so we're, we are developing that framework so we can better deploy our, our capital. 
on that capital question, that question came in, and I, I do think it's interesting. We we didn't hit it on it, so you know, feel free to pass. But you know, presumably we might see a lower cost of corporate capital, right? The, to your point, Cindy, there might not be as big of a, a pool of money such that we can then use that for real estate. Is that impacting, or has it yet even come into the consideration of maybe a reverse monetization strategy? Um, instead of, you know, buying back your building, you know, are you now considering going back? Has that even entered the realm yet? I think the pendulum's always swinging, right? We went through a period of time when everybody monetized. And mm -hmm. so we're now all living through the re great reality of working with our REIT partners um, and what challenges those bring. So um, I, I do think you're starting to see some conversations bubble up. I don't know if that'll bear fruit. I, I don't know if any of my, my partners on the call have thoughts on that. I, I think what it's done relative to analyzing the lease versus own decision and analyzing individual deals is amplified the financial transaction aspect of it. You know, it, it, you know, Real estate is a location. It's a quality of building. It's a it's a it's a presentation to the community and your patients. But moreover, it, it it's a fight. It, it's a it's a deal. It's, a, it's dollars and cents. You've got to understand the the very small you know changes and things like cap rates that can have tremendous impact on value. And you know when the internal cost of capital fluctuates by a half a point, that makes a material difference in the way you're analyzing a given transaction. Where there's, you know, that's always been the case. That's not new news. Mm -hmm. Being ever more important today when those, those half a point ticks can be daily, weekly, certainly monthly. And so, you know, I, I think the, the, the emphasis on, on, on considering these real estate deals as financial transactions far more at a really detailed level, far more than really ever before has, has at least been prevalent for the work we've been doing. Yeah, I think that's helpful. Well, I think we have about five to 10 minutes left and there's quite a few questions that are kind of just random. If if you guys are okay with it, I'll kind of uh, tick through those and to the extent any of you feel comfortable responding, feel free. Um, I think we answered that one. You know, one of the questions I think that came up when we were talking about, you know, reutilizing re space in light of the pandemic um, is how are you guys addressing the need for more technology as it relates to Wi-Fi coverage, et cetera? Um, you know, how is that impacting the, the, I don't think we hit on technology. So maybe if you guys can hit on that expanded use uh, and if that's impacting the way you guys are looking at your existing and reutilizing the space. Well, nobody else is jumping ahead. I'm not even sure what I'm going to say, but silence was deafening. The, uh, uh, well, I mean, what came immediately in mind is something as silly as printing. Mm -hmm. So many people working from home, printing and, and, and whether or not you've got adequate Wi-Fi access where you live, you know, whether you can maintain an unfettered, you know, video connection for hours and hours on end. I, mean, I guess what I would say is that just challenges nobody ever really thought we'd think about before. And, and you know, how real estate interacts we interact with our HR department a lot as it relates to, again, that associate experience. I can say, you know, commend my colleagues, certainly in our organization for really paying attention to that, thinking through those things. Whereas you look at a, a real estate person, square feet, you know, TI, the typical stuff we deal with, 
know, having to figure out whether or not, you know, the people who work around those administrative locations really can do so effectively from home. You know, how do we accommodate a group that needs to come in and print at a high volume? How do we accommodate a group that has a scanning function that shouldn't be done in their home office? What are the IT considerations, mm -hmm. you know, connecting your home printer to your company laptop, things like that. I, I, I can't profess to indicate that we've got a solution or that we've even begun to answer these questions, but they're just new challenges that, that we're trying to figure out. I, I would argue that a uh, personal opinion, certainly, but the benefit of remote work, again, as we said earlier, as it relates to a, being a retention tool, as it relates to attracting talent, as it, as it, as it promotes sort of counterintuitively the work-life balance as some people have experienced. I think those benefits far outweigh the challenges associated with figuring out how to securely print something, you know, and, 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 and look, if those roles require those types of, of, of activities, they shouldn't be remote all the time. They, they should be hybrid. And then again, doesn't that all speak to the flexibility of what we're trying to provide and still get the work done that is requisite for our organization? I, I, I couldn't tell you the color of the cabling in our office spaces, but I can sure tell you that we've thought about what it meant to not have that available in your house in rural Virginia, for example. Yeah. Certainly something we need to address and tackle that everybody does. Absolutely. Yeah, along those lines, and, and I don't know the answer to the solution either, but I know that we're certainly considering um, technology that will allow for a seamless connection between virtual offsite workers and those that are on site. I know there's been some struggle with, say, there's two, two folks in a, an office and then they're on a team's call and trying to get everybody and the sound and, you know, the interaction between the two that are offsite and the one that, so I, I know that that's been talked about and will be looked at and, and being implemented into our facilities is how to get some sort of seamless technology between the offsite workers, the remote workers and the onsite workers. Right, and all I can say is it hasn't been an issue for the, my teams and the teams I work with. So maybe that speaks to the fact that our system and uh, specifically our ISIT folks are handling it really well. I mean, prior to um, the pandemic, we all migrated to a single platform. We, our company uses Teams. Um, is It's a really robust platform. It works really well. Um, and, and I think in healthcare, we're all used to handoffs and working as teams to deliver care and 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 our administrative teams are doing the same thing you know if somebody's microphone doesn't work or camera isn't working or they can't figure out to do this or that everybody's been jumping in so it really has not been an issue for us as for, i think the question was wi-fi coverage um and and i have not um heard uh, I've really not had any uh, experience with anybody in our system, but I don't work in IT. So I'm sure there's somebody out there and that is an issue for the ISIT department. Yeah, and to your point, it's probably, you know, driven more by the, you know, areas that you serve, you know, rural, urban, et cetera, and, and then where your colleagues are. Um, let's just hit on maybe one last question that we have a couple of questions relating uh, to lease, lease concessions, TI repayment, TI allowances, reduced rent, kind of um, what, were, what were you seeing? What are you seeing as a landlord? What are you offering, you know, especially peak of the pandemic related to, to those uh, terms, if you guys are willing to share? Months and months and months of free rent, unlimited TI, bargain basement rates across the board. It's been a smart, it's been one, no, I'm just kidding. It, 
I, I, I mentioned that, that uh, again, we, we've been successful in working with our, our, our partners and landlord partners to get, um, again, longer periods of time to spend TI allowances, some of that flex, those flexibility provisions we talked about, you know, some of your, you know, your, your typical deal terms, termination, op longer term deals, but termination options with penalties, et cetera. Um, uh, maybe it's not a deal term, but something, Cindy, you said earlier that kind of stuck with me. Moreover, the landlords have been great. Maybe that's a shocking thing to hear from the mouth of a tenant, but it's true. Landlords have been great as it relates to the difficulties we're experiencing in the healthcare system and what we have to do to keep our patients safe in buildings where we might not be the only occupant or whether we might be the only healthcare organization using the space. I, I can honestly say we've got, we've got 12 and a half million square feet of ambulatory real estate alone, not including the hospitals. The number of landlords we interact with is incredible. And I could not name a single one, nor would I, that, 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 that was anything but accommodating as it related to our need to set up a tent or, or provide or to provide testing or, or to lock down a door to make sure there was a temperature taken, those sorts of things. And we really enjoyed a, a lot of really nice collaboration. And I think it made a substantial difference or it changed our interaction with a lot of our landlord partners, largely for the positive. And again, maybe that's just a, another positive, unintentional, unintended consequence of having to deal with something like this. That's worked out great. You know, uh, but generally speaking, other you know, I think maybe more of a willingness to accept the short term going yes. fundamental East term stuff. You know, I mentioned the flexibility. I've said it a thousand times, but you know, we don't always do the five year deal. We you know sometimes don't do the three year deal, and a lot of times it'd be a short conversation when that came up. That's not the case anymore, and, and uh, anymore, you know, really any term commitment associated concessions is on the table. Uh, uh, whether it's helping the organization, whether it's because demand has been impacted. Accordingly, you know, I've certainly observed that in our lease portfolio. So, yeah, to Matt's point, I can tell you um, our landlords have generally taken the stance that short term is better than no term. Um, and because of the pressure that they're seeing in the market, they are um, they are uh, more have more of an appetite for those shorter term leases. And, and obviously, uh, we as the tenants were looking around saying, are we at the top of the market here? Do we really want to go long in a lease right now at this rate? So um, so we're both both sides of the table are seemingly willing to take that shorter term. They're also uh, willing to, again, extend the amount of time to deploy the tenant improvement dollars, recognizing that uh, when you have pandemic restrictions in place, you can't start swinging hammers if you can't even go in the building, right? So um, they've been very amenable to that, and they've been very good to work with. Um, I've not seen... Um, you know, you're seeing starting to see some softness in the market, in particular assets and particular asset classes, perhaps. But I would say healthcare real estate is healthy, and there seems to be uh, people with money that they want to deploy and invest seem to want to flock to healthcare because it seems to be a stable market in this economy, and that's putting upward pressure on rates. So I can't see that we've seen um, really any kind of softening in rates as of yet. Hopefully, but but haven't seen it. That's great. Uh, thank you to all the panelists. This has been a great and robust discussion. 